Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Colin Campbell, who is currently Director of Engineering at Two Cows. Colin joins us today from Toronto, Canada. Colin Campbell, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? My perspective's changed on this over the years. Old answer to that would be to give you like a Gang of Four reference or a Solid Principles lecture or something like that. But I kind of think of it now as like you're only as good as, as your daily habits. So what you're willing to put into it every day. I'm sure you probably know this as an open source maintainer. Uh, it ends up uh, having a life of its own. Can you elaborate a little bit on like what are some ways? I know there's other episodes I can reference for like things like Solid and in the Gang of Four, but in terms of like your daily habits, is that? Tell me more about that. Yes. So I love I love like giving this speech about like remember Alec Baldwin and Glenn Ross always be closing and then I have this like always be coding kind of version of that and it, it really kind of harkens back to that that boy scout principle where you leave your code base tidier than it was when you made whatever change you're making but what if you started that project as like the perfect developer and everything was pristine how do you make something pristine more pristine there is no such thing as the perfect developer <laughs> uh, uh humility is one of the habits i think is really important in what we do as great as we all think we are we're likely not to be the first person to encounter whatever we're writing. In the end, if our aim is to have maintainable software, the less code you write, the more maintainable it is. You know, when I think about humility and software engineers, and do you feel like there's a like an arc that most developers go through in their career that they get kind of come out like feeling like they've had to eat some humble pie at some point, or is because I've definitely met plenty of software engineers that have been doing this for 25, 30 plus years and still see themselves rather, humility is not necessarily something that I would use to describe them. They're very confident and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, they're kind of skeptical of a lot of other people that are, how they're approaching things and because they feel really confident about their own approach. Where do you think that shift changes for people or do you think there's a certain different types of archetypes of software engineers? What do you think kind of contributes to that? Yeah, so I, I manage all kinds of people across the entire spectrum. And one thing that I've really noticed is that new engineers love to be busy. The greener they are, the more they want to write the solution themselves or come up with it. And when I think about my really seasoned guys, they're they're like code averse. They're trying to like string together open source tools and just glue things to- together and uh, and are, are usually not into building things completely greenfield like that. You know, as I was saying before, every line of code that you write is a line you need to maintain. So if somebody else has written in and is taking care of that better for you it's interesting thinking around people that are more say newer to this career might wanting to be saying busy in some way or wanting to feel like they're contributing and writing code and it's been interesting over the years for myself as, as i've hired people and we've had interns come in and out of our organization on a regular basis is that there's this perception that like okay you need to learn how to write software you know you might get your first job helping fix some bugs working something related to customer service bug fixing and and then eventually you're going to spend all of your time as an 
the engineer, writing new code, building new things. And like, that's the ultimate goal is to get to that point where like, look, I'm building new things. And that's like where you add value. Perception seems to be that like be a maker, you're going to be, you know, you're going to solve all these big problems. And then the reality of a lot of software engineering is like you're modifying, incrementally improving things, you know, refactoring, you know, often get to like spend a lot of time maybe necessarily working on something new. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Like why, I think Joel Spolsky writes about this all the time, right? All that big pile of legacy mess you have is the thing that's making you money. It's all your bug fixes are all in there. And and why just ditch that for a new endeavor? It's true. What sort of habits do you see, like say healthy habits, because I'm sure there's probably some not so healthy, maybe we can touch on that as well, that you see either in yourself or in people within the teams that you work with that seems to be extremely valuable. So one thing I really like is when we do start a new project, the sprint zero type task is deploy nothing. And then anytime you add something, if you break the deploy, that becomes your number one priority. And I think having like a real strict adherence to that just keeps things more agile as you keep going. And then like ditto for testing, right? I haven't thought about that in a while because my, my company tends to work on existing software, kind of like probably why you know, I focus on this, the podcast on maintainable software and improving tech debt and legacy code type issues. But I remember there being a thing early on that we, my organization and we something, I remember giving a talk a long time ago and it was like one of the first things I started realizing, I was like, we need to like get this application. We, we spun up a brand new Ruby on Rails application and now we're going to deploy it to a server and have that ready. We need to know that we can start doing that early on because at some point the client's going to want to see something anyways. And it's like if you spend too much time building something and then how are we going to deploy this? Where are we going to deploy this? It needs to get worked out at some point too. And that could definitely change how you might architect, you know, certain aspects of the software as well. So I think if you're, I think that's a good, a good thing to think about. Do you, um, but where do you find that line between like over planning early on in that early phase is like, where's the, I'm sure there's like a little bit of a, well, we need to do it on this platform. It needs to be able to scale like this, but you know, we, we haven't actually written much code yet. I think it's important to remember, like it's important to do something instead of nothing in regard to the deployment. So it's likely not going to be your final destination, right? And, and it'll evolve with your code base as you work on it. You know, I'm curious also, you know, you know, we touched a little bit on some healthy habits. Are there some habits that you've struggled to break free from yourself over the years? The best habit I've ever had is to be lazy in the best possible way. And I guess that goes back again to what I was saying about the more lines of code you write, the more you need to maintain. But, you know, there's that old hacker ethos in, in, in the open source Linux world about the lazy programmer. And I think there's some real power to that that we might be forgetting these days as everybody's all enterprisey, you know? Yeah, I don't know that I actually had heard, you know, having been part of the open source and Linux pro, I don't know that I've actually come across the, the lazy programmer ethos. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So like back in the day, the whole Unix thing was like, all the tools are here to just do something, right? I, I think this is why like everything's so composable in, in Unix is, is like all the piping and stuff like that. And so I don't know, like when, when I was going to school, I don't, I don't know what vintage you are, but it, it, was, it was really kind of um, goal to do less. It was like a trope almost, right? And you know, what's interesting is we think about how software is supposed to enable businesses to do things or enable us to work on some projects or, you know, interact with different people or using technology to do some, some work for us on our behalf. So we're not doing things manually, number crunching or what have you. I don't know if you think about, do you feel like, you know, I, I don't think I've actually had many conversations so far with anybody in the podcast and I hadn't planned to bring this up, but how do you feel like AI now is helping us become better lazy programmers? 
Oh man, so I, I tried ChatGPT out to do something for me and it's fantastic for like doing your command line option parsing. Like I, that stuff I don't want to write. <laughs> and you just, you can just talk it through that in, in whatever language you're using and bang, you have it. I think so that sort of like routine kind of stuff is, it's really as useful as like Google was to look stuff up quickly when it first came out. That's, that's cool. Are you doing anything on the, using any AI driven tools on the command line yet or anything? No, we're not actually like officially using it, but our, our CTO has been training ChatGPT up on our business to help them write memos and, uh, you know, like uh, business reports and stuff like that. So it's, it's new for us, but yeah. I want to take a quick step in or kind of pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about OpenSRS. Can you talk us a little bit through your journey of reinventing OpenSRS? Maybe you can also, like, what is OpenSRS for those that might not be familiar? Yeah, so OpenSRS is the big domains platform at 2CAS. So 2CAS Domains is the, I guess, the number two domain reseller in the world. I think it's not really a household name like GoDaddy is because the business is largely wholesale. So usually, you know, like uh, Squarespace would be buying their domains through 2CAS. Two customers and OpenSRS as a platform. It's really, really legacy. I was working in there one time and I saw some comments from uh, like 1998 kind of thing. So it's very large and very old and very pearl. We were kind of uh, given a little bit of a job to see if what we could do to kind of move it into the future. Interesting. What's some, what are some of the challenges that you faced? Is it just that it was an older pearl based platform or was that using any sort of framework or is it just uh, so it, it was so old that it was like hodgepodge of that. So there was like some just straight code sections. And then there were maybe some newer features that had like a framework attached to it. I think the one in Perl is called Catalyst. I think, I think that's what they were using. There's like multiple RRMs in there. Uh, so it's, this is sort of maybe a great example of a 25 year old code base, just having everything, including the kitchen sink. I'm having faint memories of my early part of my career where I was working on getting to do some stuff with Perl, but like it was in, in different languages like Python and Perl back in the day and PHP. And it was always like, well, when I would get introduced to a project and I'm like, well, they were using this one ORM in a few places. I prefer this other one. I'm creating some new stuff. I might as well just start using this new thing and maybe I'll get a chance to go back and migrate the old stuff to use this as well. Someday maybe it doesn't always show up, especially on like a smaller freelancing type engagement. But it's interesting thinking about like, frameworks became a thing because it was just like, let's just make a bunch of assumptions. Like if we all just follow this pattern, it'll make our lives a little easier, lazier potentially. And that was like one of the things that I struggled with for a long time when I started thinking about using like a framework, like Ruby on Rails was like one of those for me at the time, it was just this transition to being like, well, you're making a lot of decisions for me. But then I was like, this might, maybe, maybe if I just lean into this, I'll have more payoff and then I can like what I didn't realize is like, oh, you know, 15, 20 years later, almost, um, I can jump into any Ruby on Rails application. I kind of know where things are supposed to be. And that makes my life easier. And maybe I can be lazy about that. I don't have to like read up on every Ruby-based ORM and understand everything because I know that most of them are using this platform. And that, that can be liberating. And then so when now do you feel like technology is more consistently like that? Or now I feel like there's a, an abundance of like options that people can choose when you're starting a new project? Like, how do you think about navigating those types of decisions? Or how do you advise your team to think about that when you're like, well, this stuff is kind of hot and new right now, but, you know, will it still be useful in 10 years or? 
Yeah, I think it really depends what you're doing. I think uh, I think something like Rails is great to get you started. Although the one thing is, if you end up having to scale to sort of a more enterprise level, what you realize is that a lot of those safe defaults that you were talking about, I, I feel like the frameworks, they're optimized to gain user adoption more than maybe like run these things at a larger scale. Uh, so I think if you're going for a quick to market approach, I think they're fantastic, especially like if you're on your own, who the hell wants to write like a, like a router themselves or like an API gateway or something like that, right? Use something. So frameworks are useful to get going. And that thing that you said about, about how there's sort of like this common language that everybody can share. Also like Ruby world reusable gems can come in really handy, right? And then other times you, you, you just, just need to get on with the thing that you're doing. I think for younger people like starting out, one thing that is actually a really good way to learn how all these systems work and not be like framework guy is to try to write one of those frameworks yourself. I remember when I was uh, uh, younger, I, I used to do a lot of that kind of thinking like, oh, I can I can write a PHP router that's faster than Laravel's with, you know, and, and it is because you're not doing half the stuff they're doing, right? <laughs> Only what you needed to do, right? And that 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 could be great as well. I think it's, it's just trying to find that happy balance there, I suppose. And you know, I think if you're early on in an organization, whether or not you're going to need to scale to an enterprise level or not, you know, like I'm assuming most software projects don't need to do that. But then it's a it's it's a tricky thing of like navigate. Like I feel like people are like, well, if I want to get a job, I need to know these specific frameworks or these specific programming languages so I can get a job you know, maybe at one of these large companies, but if you also want to potentially just get a job at a smaller company, like there might be different like skill sets you need there and trying to figure out like, well, we do this because this is what Facebook does, you know, but if your company's never going to be at Facebook. No one will ever be as close to Facebook. And like, you're right, those frameworks will scale really well. I mean, like Instagram was famously using Django until they had like 100 million users or something like that, right? It's a, it's a lot of caching, right? I guess is how they pull that off. But it's a great barrier, reduced barrier to entry. But yeah, it all just depends what, what you're trying to accomplish, I think. Hey folks, it's Robbie, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Let me cut to the chase. We've got a new sponsor, AppSignal, and they're a game changer. Do you know how dealing with errors and performance issues is like playing whack-a-mole in a dark room? AppSignal is the spotlight you've been missing. They bundle up to six, that's right, six monitoring tools into one. I'm talking error tracking, performance monitoring, host metrics, uptime monitoring, custom metrics for your application, and logging. If you're like me, I'm skeptical of any tool that promises to do everything, yet AppSignal shines through all that. AppSignal currently supports Ruby, Elixir, Python, Node.js, and if you're giving a go at one of these JavaScript front-end frameworks, you can easily integrate it into your application. And there's new language support on the roadmap. With plans starting out at a modest $23 US a month, it's a pretty sweet deal. Toss in ISO 27001 certification, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance, AppSignal's gonna keep your data secure. Take a moment to set a reminder on your phone, send yourself an email, add it to your to-do list, and check out appsignal.com and snag your free trial today. Again, that's appsignal.com. Tell them that your good friend Robbie from Maintainable sent you. Let's get back to our show. You know, on the topic of rewriting versus improving your existing code, where do you typically land? Never rewrite. <laughs> Unless maybe you're shifting platforms, which is more and more rare with Docker these days. So I think just continual improvement 
is the best thing. And I think there's like this great Hemingway quote where he says like, I mean, he's obviously talking about writing English, not code, but he says like, your first draft is going to be shit. So knowing that's kind of liberating into that, I'm just going to keep rebuilding. But I've never really seen a successful, like from the ground up rewrite. And this is why when we were trying to add some new tech to open SRS, we left the monolith and kind of strangler figged our way out of it. For those listening that might not be familiar with the strangler fig approach, could you give a quick little tutorial or overview of that? Strangler fig's like a design pattern where you find seams in the code you want to rewrite, and then I guess basically reroute chunks of code to your newer code. And then that way you've always got your older code as the backup, and you're not left with the burden of redoing the whole system all in one go. You can just kind of pick and choose the bits you want to work on now. And, and then like we would usually like put a feature flag around the new bit so we could see how we're doing and turn it off if it all goes to hell. No, that, that's helpful. I was literally ha having a conversation yesterday with a small company where the owner of the company contacted us because they're kind of, they have a small development team of like a couple of developers internally. And the owner is like, was like, well, the team started to talk a lot about rewriting as like the only option at this point. Can we get a second set of eyes on this? Because he's like, I don't know. He's like, I trust my developers, but they built this and now they're saying they can't untangle this. And so I was, I was on a call yesterday with someone and this is going to get published in the future. So I can't like, I don't think anyone listening on that call yesterday probably will remember this, but we'll listen to this episode. But if they do, I'm just using it as an example, I won't name names, but it was, it was interesting having this conversation where the primary, like the tech lead was very, very like, there's no other way. Like, it doesn't make sense for us to upgrade the platform. We'll just start a new thing and we'll start doing this in parallel. And I was like, you have a small team. You're responding to customer issues and bug refixes, making small little features. And you're going to start building a second application in parallel that's going to retain 80% of the features because you realize you built some stuff you no longer need. And I was just like, how are you going to do that when you haven't had the time to work on improving the thing, you're just going to build a new thing. And I'm like, it seems like a fantasy that that's going to happen. And the owner of the company is just like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, and I was just like, this is a, this is a messy situation for you to kind of navigate. And so it was, an it was interesting kind of being in that, in that place of being like trying to push again. I'm like, you really want to, I'm like, and then I, so I at least had this conversation and said, I'm going to be able, be frank with you. If you're going to go through the process of considering writing, you definitely need to have a conversation. Is that the right framework for you? reevaluate your technology choices. If you're going to do that, have that conversation now too. And don't just assume you're going to work on the same platform that you've been working on the last 10 plus years and you're going to do it better this time because it seems like you might have some you know, team habits or practices or not enough time allocated towards iterating and improving on things because you've just been more of a reactive-based team for such a long time. Like what's going to shift in your team culture that's going to make you know the next version better I didn't feel like I got a good sense of that. But anyways, it was just like a, that happens. And I try to live in this world of pushing against the rewrite because I'm like, those are very expensive. You know, I think even that developer said it'd probably take over a year to do a rewrite. That's, that's a big project to just, you know, halt work keeping your existing thing work, working. So anyways, any advice on for anyone else listening that might be thinking, one day I just can't wait. We're going to get to like rewrite either a new platform or a new thing and everything's going to be better next time because I'm going to do it the right way this time. I think those uh, discussions always come up and they're largely fueled by developer anxiety. You know, that, that last 10 or 20% is always the hardest. And I think that a lot of times the engineers get there and then they're like, no, I can, I, that's like... 
they're on cruise control until they get there. And then it's like, oh, I got to rewrite this. And then that puts them back in that safety zone for themselves. And I, and I think, I really think that that's where you need to just kind of push them. And then I think you, like, if you do, then you end up with something even better. So for the management folks, like, I think convincing them to, you should obviously listen to your engineers, but <laughs> if you can lead them through that and around that anxiety, I think you'll get to a better place in the end. You know, I was trying to figure out how to give them some advice on like, if you're saying it's going to take a year to do a rewrite, at least a year, and just assume you're within some margin of error there, that's accurate. You've got a very small team and, and like, and like most of their planning and everything is like in their head, you know, cause they know the system inside and out. And like, that's what they think is the ideal next step there. And I was like, well, if you spent three to six months just improving the software or thinking about specific areas of the code base you want to refactor and revisit, could you make like a lot of progress there and maybe avoid needing to do the rewrite. And I think it's just hard to get them into that space of being like, I don't know how to untangle this anymore. But like, so anyway, I think it's always interesting of like, sometimes you need to have someone in a a leadership role that I think what their owner is hoping for is I can be like, I can come in and say, do not rewrite this work within that constraint. You're going to have to live with this application for the next five to 10 years. What are you going to do now? And don't think about like this someday blank slate and you're going to do it better then. Cause I feel like it's, that's like, that's the hard part about software development. And so, and they may just not have a lot of experience of doing a lot of refactoring like that to, to navigate that. And they might need some help or some coaching or some validation that that is possible, but it can be difficult to kind of get people at it once they've kind of gone down that path and be like, no, this is the right way. Yeah, that's really true. As you get better at refactoring, it's like more fun. And then you're more confident with that. And then like, I found like the older I got, it was like, it completely stopped saying that rewrite <laughs> thing. Cause it's like, oh, I can actually be really successful with this refactoring stuff. I remember when I first got my hands on Martin Fowler's refactoring book many years ago. And I just started, was reading through some examples and I think it was all mostly Java, right? And I was working primarily in PHP at the time, but I was able to be like, this is, this is kind of fun. So I feel like that was like an aha moment for me. And I, th- I don't know that enough people consistently get to like go down that path or even have the time to like sit down with a book like that or start looking over things like, okay, let's, let's look for some things and th- let's apply some new patterns to this stuff. There's nothing unique about m- our business model that we can't kind of learn from some other examples from, you know, we have these, all these design patterns and stuff like that. That's why those things exist. They're not like perfect necessarily and not always applicable, but there sometimes is a path through things if you kind of can get your focus narrowed in a little bit yeah totally and building that finding code smells and having suggestions out of them is a great muscle to use for uh code reviews too when you when you're talking with your people on your engineering team are there times where they want to advocate for refactoring things or they they kind of push like we need to do this but it doesn't make sense to do it right now and you needed to kind of push like let's revisit this like maybe next year Um, how do you kind of weigh that up with your team yeah so i have like a a pretty senior group that doesn't talk about rewriting very much and they do refactoring a lot but we would like kind of lean on our product group and then me as as their director to kind of rework the roadmap as needed yes so like oftentimes we will just sort of move the goalpost for certain objectives and then just implement when they're ready right it's good to get it all written down or diagrammed or something like uh, we seem to be all over the place now that we're all remote but and then have a thing to point at this was great in the whiteboard days how often are you bringing in new people into your team? And it's not always brand new people to the company, but I feel like we 
within every six months or so, we're remorphing to some degree or another. I have a regular change cadence at, at about six months. How do you think about introducing people to, do you have multiple software projects that your team is responsible for? And within that, how has your team thought about like the onboarding experience to come into those spaces and also be able to navigate reteaming or remorphing every, you know, every six months or so and like the, the makeup changing so that people can come in and be productive and contribute and knowing that people will eventually leave and not you know, following this trap where you've got like these specialists or maybe you have that. Do you have, do you worry about that kind of concern around there's like people that I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions here. So I'll let you kind of run with that then. Yeah. So number one, for new people joining the team, I really try and encourage that someone puts up a pull request on their first day that's going to make it to a production system. Whether it be the depth of the change can be small, like they're just adding their own name to the code owner's file, but it gives them a good insight into all the development practices the team have. And so I like to have that happen, whether you're an intern or a senior engineer or someone who's been there to just kind of, it's almost like a gang jump in <laughs> under the team. So that was the first part of your question. And then the second part of your question was around specialist versus generalist, I think. I really prefer the jack of all trades kind of setup. I think if you take as much responsibility as you can with your stack, you are more likely to have a stable stack. If you go, oh, that's, uh, I don't do containers. That's somebody else's job. That's some DevOps guy's job. I think you're not taking responsibility of your, your product, right? When you're bringing people into your team, are you needing to make sure that people can check all these boxes up beforehand or knowing, feel pretty confident they can pick up these things? How do you kind of assess that? I usually aim for what's a, the competent generalist. <laughs> So you can kind of suss that out in the interview process. One thing I think is a really good indicator for a competent generalist in tech or software engineering is if they have good Unix skills and can talk to you in that language. In my experience, they've tended to work out well. You know, this idea around hiring people, like aiming for a competent generalist, and do you feel like that's more applicable just because of the type of projects that you're particular organizations working on? Or do you feel like that's always appropriate? Yeah, no, I don't. That's just for me. Like uh, my group does platform architecture. So it is kind of like we need to touch everything. So I think that is geared toward me. Like if, if I was hiring like a UI expert who was just going to build us a front end, I definitely would care less about that. Do you think the people on your team would describe themselves as a competent generalist? Yeah, I think so. Well, and like what you were saying at the beginning too, maybe they, they believe they're more than competent. In most cases, it's true. <laughs> How does your team, do you organize work for like, I'm making some assumptions about like normal software engineering teams, but do you set aside a certain percentage of time or have a dedicated team that kind of rotates when it comes to dealing with maintenance type tasks that are maybe not working on new, bigger initiatives or larger refactorings, but they're kind of like being more reactive to uh, addressing issues. What, what do you think works well for your organization? So for my group, because we're doing mostly platform things, that's actually the bulk of the work. It's almost like, you know, anticipate problems and make sure they don't happen in the first place. So the guys spend a lot of their time on that. I'm pretty laissez-faire with the organization of that stuff and, and trust them to notice unless there's something I heard from some other group talking about they're using uh, what we've built for them. And, you know, they do that with like good monitoring and being proactive and, and kind of like doing those healthy habits that we talked about every day. 
So is there other departments within the organization that are kind of leaning on these platforms then? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so the one we're building right now is basically the foundation for our new mobile platform. So it's working out pretty well. When you're working in the kind of this platform space, and, and that's an area that I'm not as familiar with, admittedly, is it that the, you mentioned monitoring? Does your team get to benefit from a lot of those monitoring type tools as well, just in the same way that the other, like your mobile team working on their software products that are kind of be leaning on this platform? Do you have a lot of shared monitoring that you're reviewing together with that team? And how do you kind of decide this is more of a platform problem or this is more of like on the mobile app side, I'm making an assumption there, there's the other side of the, this, like who, who, I mean, collectively you all own it, but how do you kind of divide and conquer where it needs to be a platform or like you need to optimize your application before you ship it to our platform? Yeah. So I think there's like a real cause and effect kind of situation with that. So for instance, if one of my platform teams, maybe they run like a big Redis cache for everybody, right? They would have maybe predictive monitors to let us know when that Redis is going to run out of RAM or disk or something like that ahead of time. <laughs> so it doesn't actually happen. So they would typically build the monitor for that themselves, right? However, it's also within their interest to share that with the, the application teams who are using that Redis cluster to go, hey, you might want to watch out for that if you're doing something like bigger than normal or or you know a, a different usage that we're not really used to that might kind of goof that predictive monitor up. How do you think about your teams thinking about security in that context as well? Is, is there another department that also focuses primarily on that? Or do you feel like that's more driven by your platform team there? Yes, everybody has like what they know and then that comes out. But then we also do have a security and compliance team that kind of works with the team to check in, lets us know they need something specifically. Well, um, I really like to try and bake that stuff like right into the pipeline or something. So we're proactively like pushing all our compliance and security requirements instead of like going back after the fact and like seeing what we missed. We'll be back with your interview with Colin in just a moment. Hi, it's me. Robbie with a Y. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and also maybe write a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. If you go do that right now, just hit pause and just go to Apple Podcasts, search for Maintainable, write a review, give us a star rating. It could be one, two, three, four, five, eight stars. I don't think you can do an eight-star review. But you can give us a five-star review or four-star review, whatever. And if you're not sure what to write, just say, reference one of the episodes that you enjoyed. That would be like, I enjoyed the conversation with Colin Campbell from Two Cows. I learned a lot about platform engineering and maintainable software and being a lazy programmer. That could be a thing to do. You can also maybe post it on Reddit or post it in your team Slack channel and be like, this was a great episode or this was a shitty episode. Whatever it is, help spread the word. And now let's get back to our interview with Colin Campbell. All right, Colin, I have a couple of quick questions for you before we kind of wrap things up. And so I want to kind of touch back to this topic around being a lazy programmer. And when it comes to, like, let's think about some of our listeners that are listening to the podcast right now and they're thinking, all right, well, am I lazy or am I making myself too busy inadvertently? For developers that are kind of like within a team and feeling like there's a need to prove themselves and like value is producing the most code and maybe there's other people on the team that might not think about it like, well, if you could have spent a little bit more time, you could have written this yourselves, why bring in this external dependency? What sort of advice could you offer them on how to like navigate those internal struggles with other team members while also trying to embrace this this idea of being a, a lazy programmer. 
I think it's good to remember, like what I mean by being a lazy programmer is actually kind of hard. So, you know, when collaborating with your teammates, one good lazy programmer tactic is to have a small pull request. A small pull request keeps you focused on the thing that you're actually trying to solve. It also makes it a lot easier to get your teammates to review it for you and makes it more likely to get merged. So it all just goes back to that sort of keep it simple, stupid. If you can explain it to a family member who isn't an engineer and it makes sense to them, you probably got it right. <laughs> Being a lazy programmer sounds harder than it might seem on the surface there. You know, when your team's navigating, I'm assuming like when they're working on something, things might pop up where it's kind of like, well, while I was here, I discovered an issue. Do you typically advocate that they submit that fix separately and like and or get it out of the way or just put it on the backlog or someday maybe list like we should take care of this and then we'll come back and tends to work because i know that if you're working in a branch you know assuming you're working in git or something like that and you're working on a, a larger thing and you're like oh there's this weird thing should i stash everything go over to a new branch do that submit that tend to that and i'm losing that context where, where do you feel like it's like a, a fine line between you go down that path and and take address it now versus like come back to it later that's a really good question because that like happens all the time. I think it's important to be ruthless to the ticket. So if the thing that you find that you're talking about hinders the user story that you're like currently working on, then you would add it to the one that you're working on. But if it's like a side piece that you noticed, backlog, backlog. And but then like don't even think about it <laughs> until you go to like finish the one the, the piece that you're working on. Is it an assumption there? Because if you start doing that, there's no end to that. You might just keep doing that. Yeah, your backlog could could pile up, but also remember that your your user story is iteratable as well. So you can also rewrite your story if you need to. That's true. But it's always a tricky thing in like figuring out. I haven't come up with like a good fine like you'd use like, oh, this should take like five minutes to do this right now. Nothing's ever five minutes. Even just go through the PR process and like writing that up and you know, it ends up taking a little bit more time. But I also know that there's scenarios where you, you're working on this thing and you're like, it's preventing you from working on something or or maybe just you haven't worked on that part of the code base in a while. Maybe there's some dependencies that are not properly installing in your development environment. And you're like, ah, you're kind of having to like address things that you've other people on your team may or may not have encountered yet. And so you're kind of like, well, do I take care of this? Or should I see if someone else has already fixed this somewhere else? And then you start kind of navigating that. And you're like, I like this idea of around being ruthless to the ticket, you know, the thing that, you know, the user story or whatever you're working on at this particular moment. I think that's some, some good advice. So do you think there's like a time limit here? Like if it takes less than five, 10 minutes, just sure, take care of it. But if it's, or just stick to the ticket. So time boxing is definitely like a, a thing I'd advocate for. You know, that, that list of things that you kind of gave there for things that might veer you away from it. Engineers horrendously always underestimate things that need to coordinate. Say maybe something, you know, you need to wait for a thing for another team or something. So things like that definitely need to be pulled out and then like coordinated with like your project people. But yeah, I mean, the Boy Scout thing, right? If it's not going to break tests and if it's not going to send your code reviewer down a rabbit hole that you don't want them to, then you probably want to keep it out. You almost want to think about it like, remember the audience is the guy reviewing it and your goal is to get it merged, right? Right. It is interesting when you're like looking at a PR. It's funny because you'll start noticing often it's like like most PR review systems, they'll, you know, it's kind of like alphabetical what files get exposed to because that's just like the default sort order for like a directory structure. And it'll end up being some weird like dot files. And you're like, why did you change the get ignore file? What, what is, and you start looking at these weird little artifacts of like what's going on here? Where's the code? 
that we're actually needing to look at and like, oh, I made some changes to like the get ignore file because it was like a DS store thing or something, you know, and like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. But you're, it's like not remotely applicable to what, the, so it's just, just, just noise, I suppose, in some ways. It's like a, an interesting aspect of that. And then that just happens. Some things just kind of follow along with the PR because something got committed and, you know, it's like a line break or something. I had this amazing engineer and this is what I just, I was like, starting to get into management. So my attention was split a little bit. And when she had like a bunch of PRs, she would actually like number them, like look at this one first, then look at that one and give me like a really clear, easy path uh, so that I could get through it even if I was distracted with something else. And I heard the guys were telling me that like GitHub has like added a thing that does this for you now, just recently. Yeah, and I don't know the name of it. <laughs> oh, interesting. I'll have to look into that. Now, that'd be interesting uh, to kind of give some a better path through that because, yeah, it's, it's like a whole thing. I do know they have, like, at least I've appreciated the last few years where they started making it so you can kind of check off different sections that you've looked off, and that, that could be quite nice, like we reviewed certain files and stuff like that. But it, does your team typically pull down the PR and run this stuff through, or do you? That's a good gatekeeper. Like, if you can't explain to me how to run the thing, how to run the tests, and then if the instructions don't work, I don't know that I'm gonna spend much more time reviewing it. And then I think that's a good habit for the engineer, for habits again, is to have really clear, like being ruthless to the ticket, here we're pulling it all together, <laughs> is that, are you satisfying the ticket? Show me how you did it, and how do I test it? Yeah, that, that's helpful. And just, I think some teams kind of rely a lot on like their CIs to run the test. And, and so you're assuming, and then, you know, you're obviously hoping to check, like, do we have automated tests to show that these new requirements are being met? Sometimes it's not always super obvious. And it's like, well, I'm just looking at syntax, I guess, but this isn't, this isn't probably going to give you as much of a review unless I actually run this and try to interact with it. And sometimes that is or isn't uh, easy to do, depending on like what your infrastructure setup is looking like. But hopefully that's not the case. Couple of quick last questions for you, Colin. Is there a non-software development book, a non-tech specific type book that you find yourself recommending to peers most often? I don't, so I'm, I'm actually gonna do a not a most often one because it just came out and I just finished reading it last week, but Rick Rubin's A Creative Act is like the most amazing book. <laughs> I've like come a- It's sitting here on my, on my, my desk. It, it, it's so great. And, and just that idea of like, give your brain some space and let things come to you, I think is useful for anything you're doing. I'll definitely include links for that in the, the show notes. Have you had a chance to listen to any of his podcast episodes? No. You should check his podcast out. Interesting one uh, I, I quite enjoyed was actually he interviewed uh, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, and that was really, was, I really enjoyed that. It was a couple hour conversation there, so... This is a starter for you to consider listening to. Because you can think about how people think about how they approach their work in different fields. And it's like, I think that part of talk, thinking about someone, you know, he's, Rick Rubin is this person who kind of, in one, one way, he's like, doesn't know how to do a lot, but knows how to like unlock things for people. And I'm like, that's a skill set in and of itself. And just like asking good questions, or at least getting you to think, clear some space in your brain and stuff like that. So I can see why that book is resonating with so many people, because it definitely is with me. Yeah, I immediately thought of it when you asked about how does like security end up in your code base. And he has this thing where he says like, your position on things will come out. You, you shouldn't try to force it or else it sounds like a preachy thing. And I, and I thought about that. It's like the people that 
like are conscientious with their security bits, it'll just be there in their code in the first place, right? My mind wandered to that when you asked that question. So let's just drop that in there. Yeah. Well, awesome. And so where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development online? Oh, I'm not, I'm a bit of a Luddite here and I actually don't have like a website that I like never post anything on and, and I never looked at LinkedIn. So yeah, you, I don't think you can. <laughs> and maybe that's the best thing to do. There you go. One of the things I've been actively doing with trying to find guests that you can't find, because I know that everybody's not spending their days on social media and writing up things on blogs, but that's how I came across you is from one of our other guests. And I'm like, please help me introduce me to people that have a lot of thoughts, ideas about these things, but maybe they could spend an hour on a chat with me about this. And then maybe it'll inspire you to post a link to the podcast on your website at some point. But yeah, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Colin. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's see you.